Before we get into the episode today, I do want to come on and give a trigger warning for sensitive content. This episode does discuss experiences with eating disorders and sexual assault, so please use caution when listening. Hi guys, it's your host Amy Geckel and I am back with my second entry, my second episode of The Eating Disorder Diaries, a podcast about my 16-year battle with bulimia and my life in recovery. This episode is going to be about the shame we feel behind our eating disorders and breaking that shame. Because for me, even saying the word bulimia or admitting I was bulimic felt embarrassing. It feels very taboo. Nobody wants to talk about people binging on food, and in my case, purging. But not talking about it prevents us from breaking the stigma of these diseases. These are serious, potentially deadly diseases, and we have to talk about them more to learn about them, so that way we can help people who are struggling understand there is a way to break free of their disease. If you're someone who feels hopeless, know that you're not alone, and there are so many studies that have been done that capture just how many of us are impacted by eating disorders. If you listen to my trailer for the season, I mentioned that over 28 million people in the United States alone suffer from an eating disorder, most commonly binge eating disorder. So why aren't we talking about this more? Stay tuned and I'm going to read you some statistics about just how common eating disorders are. We'll be back right after this break. If you're like me and love podcasts, you've probably considered starting a podcast of your own. I can tell you that starting this podcast has been one of the most fulfilling things I've ever done. I use the website Buzzsprout to upload all of my shows and get my episodes listed in every major platform. Buzzsprout is hands down the easiest and best way to launch a professional podcast. When I conceptualized the idea of my podcast, I had no idea where to get started. I bought a mic, wrote some episodes, but then what? Buzzsprout has tons of guides to help get you started, from marketing your podcast to monetizing it to optimizing your SEO. You also get a website where you can link your social media handles and get detailed analytics to see how and where people are listening. Podcasting isn't hard when you have the right partners. Join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout to get started on your podcast. Following the link in the show notes lets Buzzsprout know I sent you and gets you a $20 credit if you sign up for a paid plan. Thanks for supporting the show, and let's create something great together. Like I said, there's a plethora of information on the internet about eating disorders and statistics about them. But honestly, I didn't look up any of this type of information when I was in the depths of my ED, and I wish I would have known while I was struggling just how many people are going through this, because I felt so alone. If you are someone right now who is struggling, I hope listening to this gives you the encouragement to start taking those steps towards recovery. And if you don't know where to start with getting help, we're going to talk about that too. I want to start by reading a few data points that I pulled from anad.org and singlecare.com. If you're interested, they have full articles on eating disorder statistics that I'll link in the show notes. But some of the ones that stood out to me are that global eating disorder prevalence increased from 3.4% to 7.8% between 2000 and 2018. Experts suggest eating disorders may be vastly underreported, 
and the actual numbers of people who are struggling may be much higher than the published statistics. So what does that mean? It means we're not alone in this. I think it could also mean that people don't feel comfortable telling their doctor about their eating disorder until they're in crisis mode. We also have 7.8 billion people in the world right now. 7.8% of the world population reported an eating disorder in 2018. That means over 61 million people in the world reported having an eating disorder, and we've only seen that increase with time. Eating disorders are the most deadly mental illness. The most common eating disorder among military members and veterans is bulimia. Hispanic people are significantly more likely to suffer from bulimia than their non-Hispanic peers. Gay men are seven times more likely to report binge eating and 12 times more likely to report purging than heterosexual men. 32% of transgender people report using their eating disorder to modify their body without hormones. People of color are statistically significantly less likely than white people to have been asked by their doctor about eating disorder symptoms. Like I said earlier, the most common eating disorder in the U.S. is binge eating disorder, but less than half will seek and receive treatment. And then they have a section on children. 81% of 10-year-old children are afraid of being fat. 46% of 9 to 11-year-olds are sometimes or very often on diets. 35% to 57% of adolescent girls engage in crash dieting, fasting, self-induced vomiting, diet pills, or laxatives. You guys, this impacts all of us. This impacts our children, our future. We need to talk about this. I felt so much shame for so long because I felt like I had this nasty disease that nobody wanted to talk about. So today, let's talk about it. Why did I feel so much shame behind my eating disorder? Why was I nervous to announce the name of my podcast to those close to me, even my therapist, much less go public with it? Eating disorders can be so secretive. It's not like I'm going out of my way to announce to my coworkers that I struggled with an eating disorder for 16 years and now I'm starting a podcast about it. I think shame is a huge part about having an eating disorder, shame about the way your body looks, shame about even having an eating disorder in the first place, shame about not being able to stop. Believe me when I say I've been there more times than you can count. I spent so many times saying, this is the last time I'm ever going to make myself throw up. My shame was extremely toxic. There's an article about toxic shame and eating disorders written by Margot Rittenhouse that I'll link in the show notes. Margot is a therapist and freelance writer for Eating Disorder Hope, and she goes into a lot of detail about the shame behind our eating disorders that I want to talk about. But let's start with defining shame. According to Oxford Languages, shame is a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. We fear that we will elicit disgust in others. In her article, Margot breaks down shame into two categories internalized and externalized. Internal shame is how one judges the self. External shame is how one perceives that others see the self. Research shows that internal shame is often a strong predictor of bulimia, and external shame is uniquely predictive of anorexia. This was interesting to me because as a former bulimic, I did have a lot of internal shame, 
I judged myself for everything that I did. I don't personally know what it's like to suffer from anorexia, but if you're someone struggling with anorexia, I'm wondering if you can pinpoint some of that external shame where you perceive how others see you. Another thing that Margot talks about is when the shame we're feeling becomes toxic and we call that toxic shame. She says that it becomes toxic when you experience shame for a longer duration and on a more intense and emotionally and psychologically internalized level. So I can see how both shame and toxic shame have impacted me throughout my life. One example where I felt shame is getting blackout drunk. It's definitely a recipe for disaster for me. I'm sure some of you can relate. As someone who likes to indulge at times when things go south and I drink a lot, I might say or do something I wouldn't normally ever do. I basically become so sloppy, a hot mess, and then I wake up hungover and I feel a lot of shame for my actions from the night before. But I'm usually able to get over the feelings of why the hell did I do that pretty quickly and bounce back to feeling like my normal self. But I've also felt toxic shame as well. It's that internal shame that I had when I was bulimic. Margot captures in her article that those with toxic shame craft this shame narrative about themselves. A shame narrative is basically telling yourself that you're not enough, that you're not worthy, you're ashamed of who you are, you're not good enough. And we repeat that over and over so many times that it starts to become a core belief of ours. It becomes embedded in the psyche and we start to see everything that happens to us through the lens of that shame narrative. I'll give you an example about me. When I was bulimic, part of my shame narrative was telling myself that I was fat, telling myself that I wasn't strong enough to get better, telling myself that I wasn't worthy because I couldn't stop making myself throw up. I was molested as a child, so I told myself that I was tainted and that my body wasn't my own. So then I started to see everything in my life through that lens. I made myself throw up constantly. I dated people who put me down or wanted to change things about me. I would get infatuated with these people who weren't even interested in dating me, but I didn't feel worthy of waiting to find someone who was. I let people put me down at work. I let friends at the time walk all over me. And looking back, I realized I had this internalized core belief and shame narrative that that's what I deserved. When you tell yourself something enough, you start to believe it. So how do we break that shame narrative? I've got one more article for you from Psychology Today written by Hannah Rose that talks about deconstructing the shame narrative. Like the rest of the articles, I'll link it in the show notes, but I encourage you to look this one up and read it if you are struggling with your shame. Hannah is the owner and psychotherapist at a private practice counseling group in Maryland, and she writes that shame is at the root of everything that keeps us stagnant and that keeps us sick and feeling broken. So I think it makes sense that if we heal our shame, that's one step closer to healing our eating disorder. She talks about the difference between guilt and shame, with guilt saying, I feel bad, and shame saying, I am bad. Guilt can actually be healthy and motivate us to change, whereas shame is counterproductive, and shame is buried inside of us and penetrates all aspects of our life with this shame narrative that we have. 
So we have to find the cause of our shame in order to move forward and heal. I think it can get really uncomfortable to identify what we feel shame over and to think those uncomfortable thoughts. And I think a lot of us have used our eating disorder behaviors to numb ourselves rather than sit with those feelings. I know personally, that's what I did when I was struggling. I couldn't possibly admit that I was this girl who had been abused that went on and made herself throw up in private and feel like I was letting everyone down by making myself throw up. But being able to fight it and sit with those uncomfortable feelings rather than numb them with our eating disorder will not only expand our capacity to feel, it will make us stronger. So when I started learning to sit with my shame narrative about how unworthy I was, how fat I was, how tainted I was, I was able to take a step back and observe it and question it and heal. I chose not to believe it. Remember, this is a shame narrative. Shame is counterproductive. Maybe you've heard before that your thoughts aren't real. And they're not. Our brains are wired to think a certain way. We have neural pathways in our brain that are formed by repeated thoughts. So what that means is I've had a shame narrative for years that I'm fat and unlovable. That forms a legitimate pathway in my brain. And now I'm wired to think that. So if I can take a step back when I'm thinking I'm fat or thinking I'm about to binge and purge and observe that I'm thinking that and recognize it as my brain's predisposed way to thinking and realize that I can change that thought and I don't have to believe it and replace it with another thought, that's how I'm going to heal that. Eventually, we're going to start creating new neural pathways in our brain if we consistently think that new thought. I think of the mantra, fake it till you make it. And that's what I did. I would replace my thought of I'm fat or I'm worthless or I can't get over this eating disorder with thoughts that I can get over this eating disorder, that my body is strong, that I am smart and healthy. And eventually those neural pathways in my brain that had that shame narrative started to be overridden by the new, more loving and accepting thoughts that I was giving to myself. I have a coming episode where I interview my therapist and she has a really beautiful analogy about changing our thoughts. So stay tuned for that episode. It's coming out in the next release. But for now, I just want to leave you with something that Hannah captures in her article that's echoed by me. And it's that you need to talk about your shame. Don't bury it inside of you. That's how you stay stuck and sick. We can't do this alone. So tell on your shame. Before we wrap up the segment, I just want to talk about a few more things that have really helped me over the years in getting to the point of recovery that I'm at. I'll give you four things. Number one is therapy. I talked about therapy in the first episode, but I think that if you're struggling, one of the best things that you can do is talk to someone. I counted before the episode, I've seen at least eight different therapists throughout my life, not counting my therapists in school. However, I have a girlfriend who is a high school therapist and she's incredible. She does extremely well with high school students and has studied eating disorders. So if you're in school still and have a school therapist, I definitely encourage you to go talk to them because there are some good ones out there. I also started noticing an impact on my healing journey from therapy. One, when I started going on a set schedule and two, when I genuinely wanted to get something out of my therapy sessions. I talked about lying to my therapist when I was in high school because I just wanted to get out of going to sessions, I think, and I didn't think my eating disorder would require that type of introspection and looking inwards and healing. 
So I'm a huge advocate of therapy and going into therapy with a purpose, whether that means you're just going to get something off of your chest, maybe you're grieving, or maybe you want to try a specific therapy like EMDR or CBT. I'm all here for it. And we talk about EMDR and different treatments in the next episode as well. For number two, I'd say going to a support group has definitely helped me. I didn't start going until I was in recovery, but I wish I had started going so much sooner. I live in Colorado now, but I wish I had started going back when I was living in Michigan even, which is where I suffered the most. One of the best things for me about support group is that it gives you this means to openly talk about your shame and your eating disorder with people that get it, with people that are still struggling themselves. And it's so unbelievably touching to have others who are still struggling be the ones encouraging you. You guys, if you have thought about going, I absolutely recommend looking up one close to you and giving it a try. And if there isn't one close to you, there's a ton of virtual support groups. So that's something that you could give a try to. Okay, so that's number two. The next is mindfulness. That can feel like such a buzzword, but in my opinion, it's for good reason. I think it should be a buzzword. Mindfulness is all about being in the present moment, being mindful. I practice mindfulness through meditation and journaling. If you haven't listened to the first episode, I would go back and listen because I talk about the specific videos I use for guided meditations. But I want to give you an example of something I recently put on the show's Instagram story that I think does a good job depicting how these meditations can help you be more mindful. I said that a lot of the meditations I do focus on is breath work. So while our thoughts might tend to focus on the past or in the future, your breath and your body are here now. And we can use our breath to hone in on the now. Think about it. If if we are intentionally focusing on how it feels to have oxygen flowing in through your nose and then exhaling, then that's what we're going to be focusing on in the current moment. We're not anywhere else. I think for a long time, my body was stuck in the past and that little girl who didn't have a chance to process what happened to her still lived within me. So mindfulness, whether it's meditating or journaling, has really helped me go back and establish a new relationship with that little girl and become her friend and protect her and allow her to process that what happened to her was not her fault. And in turn, healing her heals me now. I'm sure you've heard about healing your inner child, and that's really what I think I'm doing there. It's it's a beautiful thing. I sit with that little girl in my meditations and talk to her. And maybe you've seen people on social media putting a picture of them as a little kid on the mirror. And it's like, how can you be mean to that little girl or that little boy? But it's really true that that person still is you and still lives within you. So if they got stuck processing something, chances are you have to go back, talk to that person, that version of you and heal that. It certainly helped me move on. So I encourage doing that in meditations and looking up more about healing your inner child. Okay, lastly, a huge thing that's always improved my mental health is movement and exercise. I live in Colorado, so I'm fortunate enough to be able to go on hikes in the Rocky Mountains all the time. I am not a skier. 
Uh, if you know me in real life, you know that. Um, but if I'm not hiking, I'm going to my workout studio or I'm working out at home. During COVID, I started working out in my living room all of the time because all of the gyms shut down. And there's something to be said about making that time for intentional movement every single day anywhere. I don't beat myself up at the gym. And I also don't beat myself up if I don't want to move, though I never regret just going for a walk. Um, If I'm not feeling it, if I'm not going for a walk, I might do some Pilates in my living room. There's so much good stuff on YouTube. But I honestly think that moving my body gives me another level of self-appreciation and allows me to honor my body. I don't beat it up. My body can do hard things, as I've shown to myself throughout the years. One thing that I don't personally use but want to acknowledge is the use of medication. If you're struggling, I highly recommend you talk to your doctor about what your options are. But if you're interested in using medication to help you on your healing journey, I think it's something definitely to consider. I personally am very into holistic healing. I wanted to heal my eating disorder through more natural methods like therapy and meditating. But there are times that we are in crisis mode and we need the extra help. So that's just something to consider. Before we wrap up the segment, I want to let you guys know that in the next episode, I interview my parents and I ask them what their experience was like having a child with an eating disorder. And I also talked to them about the shame that I felt being abused as a child and how that translated into an eating disorder and into my day-to-day life. What else do you guys want to see? I have lots of interviews planned, but I also want to do more solo episodes to talk about what I've found interesting on my healing journey, like getting hormones checked. And while I haven't taken medication, I have taken a hormone to help regulate PMS because I used to find that my eating disorder would flare up when I was PMSing. So I definitely want to talk about that more and talk about what I've learned with that. But I want to hear from you. So come find me on Instagram at the eating disorder diaries and let me know what you want to hear more of. Stay tuned for the next segment and I'll be back right after this break. We are back with the final segment of the show. I started this in the first episode, but I'm going to end each episode on a positive note with a recommendation and a positive self-affirmation. So in the first episode, I gave a recommendation about the meditations I do. So it only makes sense that I talk about my other tried and true portion of my morning routine next, and that is journaling. Over the past two years, I filled up countless journals, but I actually use three journals daily. That might seem excessive, but it's important to me and it's truly made an impact, so I prioritize it. It's also become very habitual because I do it every day. So each of the three journals that I use is different. I have one for a word dump where I write a few paragraphs or a few pages just to check in each day. Um, But what I wanted to recommend today are the other two journals that I use. They are five-year journals. They're essentially one line a day memory books. And I think these are perfect for those who maybe want to start journaling, but don't know where to start or don't think they can keep up with the habit um, because you only have to write one line a day. I'll link both of the ones I use for you guys in the show notes. But 
One is completely blank. It has blank lines, kind of a free for all, write whatever you want to write for the day in one line. I usually write about what I'm doing. Like today I wrote that I'm going to support group. I have a day at work, you know, and then I'm going to go to a bar class. Sometimes it's more fun. Sometimes it's like I'm in Las Vegas. Yay. Um, But you get the gist. And the other journal is the same concept, but instead you answer a question each each day on the same year. For example, today's question was describe your dream partner. And last year on the same day, I answered that exact same question. Um, So I think both journals are a cool way to see how your answers change or what you're doing evolves over the years. And it also can get you into the habit of journaling without having to devote a ton of time to it. So that's my recommendation. Um, My positive self-affirmation is that I am a great cook. I'm confident in the kitchen. I love cooking for people. I love when people get seconds of my food. So today I'm reminding myself of that. If you liked this episode, please subscribe and share the message. Also, follow me on Instagram at The Eating Disorder Diaries. Like I said, I want to hear from you and I want to continue to grow and get the word out because this is important. And remember to be nice to yourself. Remember to love yourself. Remember, we can change our thoughts and we can do it together. I'll talk to you guys in the next episode. This podcast was written and produced by me, Amy Geckel, with music from Coma Media. You can follow the podcast on Instagram for updates. And if you want someone to talk to, you can email me at theeatingdisorderdiaries at gmail.com. Take care of yourselves, guys, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.